Heavenly Father, we do thank you for encouragement. We thank you that you use the experiences of our brothers and sisters to remind us that you are at work all around and in us. I thank you for the power of what you've given us in your word and that you have allowed us to be servants in the delivery of it. That it comes from you, it's explained by you, and it does its work through your power, but Father, we participate with you as you give us opportunity, and it's glorious, and it is encouraging and amazing, and I thank you, Father, that you have allowed it. And I pray for all those who would be here, whether present physically or otherwise, Father, that they would hear the word spoken by you and not by me, that they would understand it as something prepared by you for their benefit, and as such, Father, they would receive it from you. And let it do its work in each of us, Father, today and every day, that we would become molded into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this. In verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul says in that letter to the church in Corinth that the thing of first importance to every believer, to every Christian, the thing that we must understand is actually a very simple idea. Christ died for us, just as the scripture said. He went into a tomb and was buried, and then he raised on the third day, just as the scripture said would happen. That's it. Dead, buried, raised. That's the thing of first importance. Until you know that, you know nothing, and nothing else matters. The thing of first importance. Your faith in that simple three-part story reconciles you to God, your sins are forgiven, you receive eternal life, all of that of first importance. And where we are now in the study of the Gospel of Matthew is at the point where those three things are in view. We are now studying the point of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. So, not my words, Paul's words, there is nothing more important than we will study in the entire Gospel, maybe even in the entire Bible, than these three things, because they are of first importance. We left off last time in verse 50, and that was of the first step in these three, Jesus dying. And as we learned when we looked there last time, no one took Christ's life from him. He lay his life down. He wasn't a victim. He was a purposeful sacrifice in obedience to the Father. And I want to take you back to what we have been looking at. We're going to have a a number of slides today, actually, starting with an overview of the timeline again of what we're looking at on this week. Remember, Jesus hung on a cross for a total of six hours on this day, three hours to receive the wrath of men, three hours to receive the wrath of God. Now, Jesus, as you know, did nothing to invite either of these. He didn't invite the wrath of men by sinning against anyone, nor did he invite the wrath of God by violating any law. He took our place in both cases during these six hours. And then after experiencing three hours of spiritual death, spiritual separation from the Father during total darkness, Jesus reaches the end of that last three-hour period, the end of the six, and at 3 p.m. he declares it is finished, the wrath of God now being satisfied, he's paid the price for sin, and therefore he could now be released from his suffering. He bows his head, he yields his spirit to the Father, and his body died. 
And then at this point, we now enter the last three hours of the daylight of this day, the last three hours of Passover on this day. And the events of the last three hours are basically Jesus being prepared for burial and then placed in a tomb before sundown. And this process has to happen quickly. It has to happen before 6 p.m., before the end of that day, because the end of that day at 6 p.m. is the end of Passover. And the next day, beginning at 6 p.m., is a Sabbath. Remember, we learned earlier that Passover, the feast of Passover, is always followed by another feast on the Jewish calendar called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread starts the very next day, and it goes for seven days. And according to Exodus chapter 12, verse 16, the first and the last days of this seven-day feast are a Sabbath day. The first and the last days are considered Sabbaths. And that's true regardless of which day of the week those Sabbaths fall on. And that's why Jews called these high Sabbaths. That's the term for a Sabbath that is not the normal weekly Sabbath on a Saturday. When it's a Sabbath for other reasons, like in this case, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the day before a Sabbath is a day called a day of preparation. And because the day after Passover is always a Sabbath, therefore the day of Passover is always a day of preparation. And the reason it's called a day of preparation is because when you know your next day is a Sabbath and you can do no work, you have to do some extra work on the day before to make sure that the next day you won't do any work. For example, you have to light fires and keep them lit. You draw water from the well. You, you make meals in advance. All the work that needs to be done so that when the Sabbath comes, you don't have to do any of that work. And so the day before Sabbath is called a day of preparation. In fact, John actually tells us this very thing in his gospel. He says, because the day of Passover, he says, was a day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath for as he says, the next day was a high day or a high Sabbath, they asked Pilate to break the legs of the, of the prisoners. Now, what we're saying is this, what John is saying is this, they have got three hours to bury Jesus. If they don't get Jesus in the grave before sundown, the Sabbath starts, and you can't bury people on a Sabbath. That's work. So Jesus would have remained unburied if they couldn't get him in the grave by 6 p.m., but in this case, in this year, it's even worse than that because since Passover fell on a Thursday in that year, not only was the next day a Sabbath because it's the high day starting the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but you notice the day after that, that's the weekly Sabbath that comes around every week on Saturday. So in this year, there were two Sabbaths back to back, which comes around once in a while, which means if he wasn't buried, he's going to remain unburied for two full days into the third day. And in that culture, uh, particularly for Jews, it was a great dishonor for a body to remain unburied, especially if it was hanging on a cross. And of course, this being Jesus, no one wants to see that. So his friends, those who were on his side, primarily women who were there and a couple of Pharisees that we'll learn about later, they are scrambling. They got three hours. Get them off the cross, get them prepared, at least in some minimal fashion, and then put them in a tomb somewhere and close it up before sundown. This is a a rush to get this done. It's, a, it's a, a real challenge. But before that in the study, there are a series 
of supernatural signs that God performs to announce the death of Messiah. And that's our focus for the most part today, these supernatural signs. I want you to go with me to verse 51 where we hear about these signs. Matthew writes, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Matthew gives us the most detailed account of all of these things from all of the writers of the Gospels, and he says that altogether there were three types of supernatural displays or signs, and they announced Christ's death. I'm going to do them in a little different order here. Let's start with the easiest one first. He says, well, of the three, let's list them, I guess. There's the veil being rent, there's the dead bodies coming out of the tomb, and there's the earthquake. Let's start with the earthquake. Because it's just what it sounds like. It's an earthquake. God shook the earth, rocks being broken and all the rest. A very strong earthquake, obviously, right at 3 p.m. as Christ dies. And it scares everyone who experiences it. The Lord does this a lot, actually, in history. Earthquakes are a common sign for God. We remember back in Matthew 24, in the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus is talking about the end of the age, he says that one of the signs that you're reaching the end of this age, that you're in the last days, he said will be earthquakes growing in intensity and growing in frequency. We studied that back in Matthew 24. And then in the tribulation to come, that last seven years of this age, in that period of history, God will use earthquakes to utterly devastate the earth, again, to announce the end is coming. So this is a common thing. God uses earthquakes. Why did he use one here, though? What's the message? Well, the reason he's using an earthquake to announce Christ's death is because it's impossible to ignore an earthquake. Uh, There are few experiences in life more humbling or better at reminding you of how insignificant you are and how powerful God is than to experience an earthquake. I'm sure few of us have experienced that, but if you have, I'm sure you could tell us all that when it's happening, it is an awesome display of God's power and you feel completely powerless, completely helpless. It is designed by God to remind you of his power and your lack of thereof. So as Christ dies, the point is simple. This isn't God's plan failing. This isn't God so weak he couldn't save his own son. This is God's power to redeem humanity through his son's death. And the earthquake is kind of the exclamation point on that as Christ dies. By the way, the sign worked exactly as planned. Look at verse 54 again. There was centurions, uh, guards, Roman guards, who were standing at the foot of the cross during the whole of this time of crucifixion. And remember what they've experienced. They went through three hours of inexplicable darkness. Then suddenly at 3 p.m., like clockwork, the sun starts shining again. And at that same moment, Jesus declares, it is finished. And then he gives up his spirit and instantly his body dies. And then in that same instant, a massive earthquake happens. I mean, you don't have to be a theologian or a geophysicist to put two and two together and say, looks like this guy was in charge. Looks like this guy had control over it. He picked the moment of his death, an earthquake, the sun, off and on. This must have been the Son of God. Now, God used all those events to move their heart to faith, but at the core of it, of course, it's God himself extending his grace to those people so that they would come to faith in that moment. But that itself 
was the response of God the Father to the petition of God the Son. Did you know that? Earlier in this moment, earlier in that time of the crucifixion when Jesus was first being nailed to the cross and the the soldiers were below him gambling for his clothes, do you remember what Jesus said? It's not recorded in Matthew, but Luke does. Luke records it this way in Luke 23, 34. Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Now look, friends, when the Son asks the Father for someone to be forgiven, it happens every single time. As Jesus says, he will ask of his Father and his Father will give him what he asks. So these soldiers, when they went to work that day, when they punched in the clock, they went to their locker, they put on their Roman soldier uniform, they looked at their calendar for the day, and they said, oh, three crucifixions today. That looks like a normal day, guys. Let's go out and do our job. They just did their job. They didn't have anything against Jesus. They didn't hate Jesus. They didn't disbelieve or believe. They just didn't care. They were there to do their job, and Jesus knew that. And so Jesus says, they're the ones who on this particular day have been assigned to crucify the Messiah. Father, don't hold that against them. They don't even know what they're doing. Forgive them. And when Jesus prays for you to be forgiven, you know what happens? You are forgiven. And not just of the fact that he, they crucified Jesus. They're forgiven of all their sins just like we were because they believed. Their faith at that moment, it's tied to the signs and the circumstances just like your faith came as a function of some set of circumstances, yes, But behind the scenes for them, just like behind the scenes for us, it's a God in heaven extending his grace and mercy to us. And he did it for the same reason uh, he did it for us, because of an intercessor, because of a savior who asked for that forgiveness. So the first sign on that day was an earthquake. The second was saints being resurrected from tombs. Now, I want you to notice how this happened because it's easy to overlook the detail here, and it's kind of interesting. Look at verse 52 first. Matthew says, the first thing that happened as Jesus died was tombs were open. Now, understand a tomb and a grave are a little different. Graves, technically, are when you put someone under the ground. Tombs are structures that hold dead bodies above ground. Uh, A tomb, for example, in that day would either have been a cave or a sarcophagus, and you would wrap a body, prepare it for burial, put it into the place, cave, sarcophagus, and then you would seal the entrance. You know, in a cave, it's like a stone they would place in front, or a sarcophagus, it's a cut stone they lay on top. Well, that's what's being opened. As Jesus dies, supernaturally, God is throwing open these tombs. Stones are being thrown away. Tops of sarcophaguses are being you know, thrown over. I don't know how it's happening, but it's supernatural, right? It's all happening at the same moment. But then notice, second half of verse 52, it says, then many saints were resurrected. Now that's, again, what it sounds like. Those dead bodies came back to life. But notice in verse 53, Matthew says those saints don't resurrect until after Jesus was resurrected. So what we're learning is this. The tombs are opened at the moment of his death. Three days later, those people walked out after Jesus had walked out of his own tomb. So for the intervening time, the tombs are just open, dead bodies exposed, but going nowhere. Now, why that particular order of things? What what is God doing there? Here's what he's doing. He's illustrating the gospel. Jesus is to be the first fruits of the resurrection, yes, but that's not what this is about because the first fruits of the resurrection refers to the first fruits of the eternal resurrection, the glory of resurrection, the future eternal sinless body resurrection. 
That's not what these are doing. These, these people here are being resurrected like Lazarus was resurrected. The week earlier, when Jesus was in Bethany and he was headed down to Jerusalem for his death, he stops by in Bethany so he can raise Lazarus because Lazarus had died three days earlier. Remember the story from John's gospel, perhaps. And when he shows up in Bethany, he calls Lazarus out from the tomb and Lazarus walks out. But what walked out? The same body that was put in. The one that everyone knew and could recognize because that was the whole point of it. It's a sign. It was a demonstration of the power of Messiah and the sign would only really work if the same person that went in was the same person who walked out. The whole point of that resurrection, similar to other ones Jesus did in his time on earth, was to make clear he had the power of life over death. He was the Messiah he claimed to be. But much to Lazarus's disappointment, he had to find out that he was going to have to die again. That wasn't the last of it. You know, good news, bad news. You're, you're back, but it's not the last of it. You're going back again. He, like all saints, are still waiting for that future day in which we receive our eternal glorified body in that eternal resurrection. If you want to make a distinction, then it's sort of a temporary resurrection versus the full, true, eternal resurrection. These saints are not being resurrected for the eternal resurrection. They're being given, like Lazarus, a temporary resurrection. So when the Bible says Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, it's speaking to that eternal. He is the first one to return to life, never to die again. These are not that. So the reason they're waiting is not because he's the first fruits. They're waiting because the gospel message needs to be reflected in this event. And how is it reflected in this event? Well, think about this. As Jesus died, what was accomplished? He said, it is finished. His atoning work on the cross has finished. The penalty of death has been satisfied. If you will, the tombs were opened. That is to say, he has made a way for everyone to escape the penalty of death. The stone blocking your escape from death was rolled away. The seal was broken. The way out was prepared. As he died, all the work was done that was needed to be done to make sure that death was not the end of you. But before you escape your sentence of death, what must be true for you? You must first accept the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So in other words, to be saved, you need someone to move the stone away, but then you must accept that Jesus was resurrected. And in a sense, what this is demonstrating is until Jesus had been resurrected, there was no way to be saved through that belief, so to speak. The tombs were waiting for the reason that they would be resurrected to happen. The tomb was rolled away at death. The resurrections followed when Jesus himself was resurrected. To put it simply, you need the resurrection to be true in your heart before it will be true for you in eternity. As Paul says, the thing of first importance that we must know is he died, he was buried, and he was resurrected. So these saints were caused to sit in that tomb a little longer, waiting for the day that Jesus resurrected so that they could follow him in resurrection, at least temporarily. Speaking of resurrection, uh, they've now been resurrected and walk around, and they start to present themselves, we're told, to people that knew them. Imagine the shock I mean, it's like a, a movie or a horror scene, right? People who have had friends or family die maybe weeks, months, years, who knows, earlier, and they show up in the living room and say, I'm back. I mean, it's a miracle, obviously, miracle of miracles. And here again, what was the point of the earthquake? You can't ignore an earthquake. What's the point of resurrections? Kind of hard to ignore a resurrection. 
And that's all to the same purpose. This man who died, his death meant something. It meant something very different. It was the Messiah's sacrifice. So an earthquake and resurrections, and then finally, going to the one that we started with and didn't cover yet, verse 51, Matthew says the temple veil was torn. Now, this final sign is perhaps the most important of the three. It's also, in my experience, the mis- one of the most misunderstood aspects of Christ's death. Remember I told you at the beginning of this study, when we got to this section, one of the things we're here to do is, dis- is to dispel a lot of the myth or misunderstandings or so that have accumulated around the story of Jesus' death. And this is a really big one. That is, what it meant that the veil was rent or torn. And to understand it properly, we've got to do a little bit of background. Now, some of you guys love this. This is where I call it geeking out on the Bible. Some of you guys like it. Some of you may not like it. I don't know. But it's what I do. So we're going to look at a a series of slides here. I want to start with some background on the temple itself. You need to understand what was going on before you can understand what it means. Okay? And going even further back than that, the temple was just modeled on the tabernacle. Let me show you a couple of pictures. So the tabernacle was that tent structure that God gave Moses to build when Israel was wandering in the desert, and it became the place of worship for Israel for centuries. Until such time as God authorized Solomon and then others later to build a permanent version of this building that we call the temple. And they're basically the same thing. One is just a lot bigger and more ornate. They both have an outer wall or enclosure. They both have an inner building or sanctuary uh, that holds them. And the building itself was divided into two sections inside them. So let's look at the inside of the building from above as a drawing. So there's that outer courtyard or fence or tent. And then you have the building itself in the middle, the sanctuary, and it's further divided inside into two places. The larger of the two spaces is called the holy place. That's the first place you would enter into, also sometimes called the outer sanctuary. And then... That place, you notice, it has certain things in it. A lampstand, a menorah lampstand. It had the table that held bread, called the show bread. It had an altar in there where they burned incense. And this is the place where priests did their daily work. This is the the workplace of a priest. They would uh, uh, kill animals out in the courtyard as part of the sacrifice, but they would take the blood in and they'd apply it to the altar inside the altar of incense, inside the holy place. They would change the bread out every week. They would keep the menorah lit. This was their workplace, the priests of Israel. Only the priests could go into the holy place, but that's where they spent their time. The second part is called the most holy place, sometimes called the holy of holies. This inner sanctuary is the place that was most revered. It held the Ark of the Covenant initially, Uh, The Ark of the Covenant was there for a time. Josephus tells us that by Jesus' day, it wasn't there anymore. In fact, that space was empty in Jesus' day. And the reason it was empty is because the Ark had been taken by the Babylonians centuries earlier, and the Jews never built another one because they they didn't have the stuff that's supposed to go in it anymore. So they just left the place empty, but they still held it in great reverence. They reserved that space as they should for God's presence, and it was behind a veil sometimes called the inner veil. And this veil separated the holy place from the most holy. While priests could go in the holy place, nobody virtually could go in the most holy place, in the holy of holies. It was empty almost all the time. No one dared go behind the veil to see what was there. There was only one exception. On the Day of Atonement, 
when the high priest and only the high priest was allowed to go in there for one day to apply blood for the sins of the nation. And then he would get himself out of there as quickly as he can. He didn't go back again for a whole other year. That place was virtually empty all the time. So back to the text. Matthew reports that this veil was ripped or rent from top to bottom. And of course, as you hear that this veil was torn, as some here are depicting it, we naturally think he's talking about the inner veil, right? Well, you know that that's not the end of the story, or I wouldn't have asked the question. There were not one veil in the temple. There are two veils in the temple. According to Exodus 26, the nation was to produce not just one veil here, but they were also supposed to veil the door leading in to the holy place. So that one is sometimes called the outer veil for that reason, so as to distinguish it from the inner veil. So there are two veils. Which one was rent or or ripped? Before we look at that question, I want you to understand more about that outer veil. Uh, Josephus, he was a Jewish uh, historian, military leader and and historian, who wrote histories of this time in in Jesus' day. He wrote a book called The Wars of the Jews, and in that book, he describes the temple as it existed in Jesus' time. Now, understand, Josephus is not a scholar of the Bible. He was not a a, a biblical author. Nothing he says is, is scripture, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have some value. He's still a historian, and even if he has some error, like all historians, his work is considered important because it's good eyewitness testimony of what was true in that day. And when he describes the building, I'm going to show it to you here on the screen from one of his works. Here's what he says. He says, the entire house, and that's a reference to the sanctuary itself, the building of the temple. He says, the entire house was divided into two parts within. It was only the first part of it that was open to our view. That's the holy place. Its height extended all along to 90 cubits in height, and its length was 50 cubits, its breadth 20. So he describes the space. And he says, then this house, as it was divided into two parts, the inner part was lower than the appearance of the outer. And then speaking of the outer, he says this, It had golden doors of 55 cubits altitude, 16 in breadth. But notice, before these doors, there was a veil of equal largeness with the doors. Now, he's talking about the doors into the outer holy place. And he says there's a veil in front of it, a purple veil. So Josephus says that's not how it actually looked. Here's how it looked. Now, I spent last week off to work on these graphics. (laughs) Took me all week. Um, All right, so the outer veil, if you had been a Jew in that day, you you know, if you, you, only the priest could go into that building. But if you stood on the Mount of Olives, which is the perspective you'd see from here, the one you see on the picture is what it would look like if you're on the Mount of Olives. Looking from the Mount of Olives, You could see down and see what was in the doorway there, and what you're going to see, according to Josephus and according to Exodus, is a veil. Behind that veil are doors, but you don't see the doors. Elsewhere in his writing, Josephus describes that veil a little better. He says it's 60 feet high, it's 30 feet wide, it's four inches thick, which if it had been woven of, of wool, which is probably what they would have used, That means it would have weighed 3,100 pounds. We're talking about a ton and a half of veil hung. And with that much weight, the wind's not going to blow it. It's not going to move. It's virtually a wall. So that veil could be seen by anyone who was anywhere near the temple or certainly up on the Mount of Olives. 
But for that same reason, you could not see into the building. You couldn't see the doors. The doors were usually open because the service of the priests was daily. They were going in there all the time throughout the day. They aren't opening and closing gigantic golden doors. They're just open. But the veil is there for the very reason that you cannot see into the room that the priests are working in when the doors are open. That's the whole intent. And the point is unmistakable. The veil obscured the way into the holy place so as to send a message to the world. What was the message sent by having a veil over the doors? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us. The writer says, the Holy Spirit was signifying this, that the way into the holy place, notice, not the holy of holies, the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. The writer says the way into the holy place is not revealed until the outer tabernacle was no longer standing. Now, when he says the outer tabernacle, he's referring to the whole building, but more than that, he's referring to every aspect of the structure that God designed. That is, the doors, the veil, the fact that only priests could go in there. The whole thing, the whole system was saying the same thing. Access to God is restricted. You can't get in there. If you wanted to get before God, you had to go to a Levitical priest, and if you wanted to worship before God, you sent them in on your behalf. You brought them your gifts, your offerings, your petitions, your sacrifices. The priest then carried it the rest of the way past that veil into a room where he then served God in your name, and you could not even see what was going on. You didn't go in there. You didn't look in there. That's how off-limits it was. But when Jesus died... God tore the outer veil and anyone at that point could understand things were changing. God is doing something new. He ripped this veil in full view of anyone who could see it and trust me, on any given day on the Mount of Olives there were tons of Jews walking around, especially at Passover. There were plenty of people who were in view of this event right here. God ripped the veil from top to bottom, that is from heaven to earth and the point it makes is obvious, right? God initiated a change. And the message is you no longer are outside. You no longer are you blocked from view. A new covenant is being established in the blood of Christ. And with a new covenant, the writer of Hebrews tells us, comes a new priesthood. The priesthood of the Levites came under their covenant. Now, God, through a new covenant, is establishing a new priesthood with new rules. And the first one is this. It's open. I imagine the crowds who were gathered on the Mount of Olives for that day, when they saw that happen, they must, I mean, they knew what that veil was. They knew what it consisted of. Broken from the top, I mean, what were they thinking? You know, the priests who served that day, after that moment, they had to walk in and continue their service knowing that their work now was in full view, at least partially. They couldn't hide behind it anymore. Now, I'm sure at some point they tried to replace the veil, but even then it didn't last very long. In a few decades, the whole building was gone. The point is, God was changing the priesthood and changing access. Now, why did I go to the effort to make the distinction for you here about outer versus inner veil and all that we just went through? Why was that important? Well, here's why. Because if you don't understand which veil was torn, you will have a fundamentally different response to the fact that it happened. For example, let's say you believe it was the inner veil. Perhaps you didn't even know there was an outer veil. And so you've been thinking all along that what God did was he ripped down the difference between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. What would that tell you? What would that say? It would suggest that you now have direct access to the Father, to the mercy seat, to the presence of God. 
And that is not true. You do not have direct access to the Father. You have direct access to a high priest who goes to the Father in intercession for you. And you need that high priest because as you sit on this side of heaven with sin, you can't go into the presence of the Father. You need a sinless high priest who will intercede for you, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who makes daily intercession for you. That's what we need. And thank goodness, that's what we have. We need Christ every day to intercede. We need his atoning work every day. We need his word every day. We need to know his plan every day. We need his grace every day. That's still in effect. That veil, if you will, is still there. Christ, as our high priest, went behind that veil, and he has applied his blood to the heavenly tabernacle in the mercy seat of heaven, and he is seated there with the Father interceding. That's the story of Scripture. Hebrews says it this way. By the way, that's the perspective you would have seen from the Mount of Olives. Hebrews 9.11 says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. He is behind that veil for our sake. And because he is there, we are effectively there. That is, he represents us there, and that's all we need. All right? That's the meaning of the inner veil still being in, a, in place. If you don't understand that, you might be tempted to think, that you don't need much of Jesus now. He's kind of done what you need. It's between you and the Father. As Jesus says in John 15, you better abide in him because if you do not abide in him, you can do nothing. But what if you understand that it was the outer veil as you heard today? Well, you know, that changes everything. Who can enter the holy place, the place that's behind the outer veil? Who goes into the holy place again? Only a priest. So if God has torn down the outer veil, do you know what that means? We're all priests. We all now have access to the holy place. And if you are a priest, then that means you have been called to serve God in a very different way, perhaps different than you ever imagined. The Bible says we are part of a priesthood now. Peter puts it this way. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. If we are a priest because of our faith in Jesus Christ, then that means we have the same duties that the priests of the old covenant did, in a sense. We have a holy place we go into, we make sacrifices, we attend to the showbread and the menorah and the incense altar. But in our case, we do them all in a new and better way than they did. For example, what sacrifices are you making? Paul says in Romans 12.1 that you make your body a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. That is your spiritual service of worship. That last phrase, spiritual service of worship, that is the term for what a priest did. Priests gave spiritual service in worship. We do that every day. As a priest... And again, if you didn't understand that that's what you are, let me explain it to you. As a priest, every day you live, you are to do what the priests of the old law did in a new and better way. Every day they woke up, they had a morning sacrifice, they had an evening sacrifice. They applied the blood onto the, uh, the altar. They uh, did this routinely as a part of their normal duties in their holy place. Your holy place is where God dwells today, right here. What are you doing every day? You should be waking up every day making daily living sacrifices. Sacrifice your desires. Sacrifice your priorities. Sacrifice your resources. Crucify your flesh and its sinful desires. Put it to death as needed every day so that nothing in your life gets in the way of serving the kingdom program 
and your Lord. Daily sacrifice. It's daily because every morning you wake up, the same things are in your body that were there the day before. Be selfish. Be self-centered. Do your own thing. Live for the world. Live for praise. Live for pride. Live for all the, the things that this world says are important. Every day, you've got to put that to death. And every day, you serve Jesus. The other thing the priest did, if you remember, was they made intercession. Somebody said, I need you to pray for me. They'd walk into the holy place. They'd burn incense. They'd send that prayer to God, so to speak. You know, the Bible says that you intercede every day through your prayers, too. In fact, the Bible says the prayers of the saints are like incense that rises to God. You're called to pray. Now, let me, let me say something to you that you may not have considered. Your prayers are intercession for those who have no access to God. Who has no access to God? Unbelievers. You are a priest. I'm a priest. I don't need to intercede for you. You're your own priest. Now, I can intercede with you. That's a proper thing to do. My point is this. Who needs our intercession more than anyone? Those who do not have access to God. The Bible says God does not hear the prayers of those who are not his. They literally have no option. They have to go through someone who has direct access. Just as in the time of the Levitical priests, you couldn't just waltz into the holy place yourself and give a prayer. You had to go find a priest and ask them to do it for you. That's a powerful ministry that we have been given. We intercede. And if you haven't thought about prayer in that way, it's not just the privilege you have to go before God. It's the, it's the priestly duty you have to bring others' needs before God, particularly those who have no direct access, and to intercede for them and to be able to speak back to them about what you know about God. Which brings us to the other two things they did. They, can't, they tended to the light, the menorah light, and the showbread. Do you know you do the same things here again in a better way? What is our light that we tend to? Jesus said we are to shine our light before men so that as they see our good works, which is the light, they would then glorify our Father who is in heaven. Shine the light of your good works done in the name of Christ and let that become a light to others. And then the bread, do I have to tell you what the bread of life is? Sharing the bread of what we've been given with others so that they would know the story of Christ in the good news of the gospel. Look, it's not brain surgery. No one here is making new stuff up, right? It's what you've always heard. But the difference is this. You need to understand that when God opened that way into the holy place through the new covenant that you're a part of by faith, you got a new job. You're a priest and not the pious kind that walks around in a robe and struts and likes to think themselves important. No, ordinary men and women, ordinary people just doing what everybody else does. But you have the mark of God on you. You are a priest of the holy living God, the creator of God Almighty. Everywhere you go. Every way that the priests of the old covenant serve God in their holy place, you have an even better way to serve him under the new covenant in your holy place. They went into a building behind a veil out of view you serve God with your life everywhere you go, out in the open. And knowing that he has torn the outer veil is key to understanding why it is that we say you're not just supposed to be someone who knows the word, you're supposed to be someone who does the word because you got a job. You know, you think about it like the priest. Every day they got up, got to go to the temple, got to get into the holy place, got to do the things we do. That's what we're here for. If we don't do it, who will? True enough for us as well, right? If the church doesn't serve Christ this way, who will? Hebrews says it this way, once more. He says, brethren, since we have confidence, change that word to privilege, since we have privilege to enter the holy place, 
by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, the outer veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's your motivation. You have access. You have God's authority to do what he's called you to do. And you have a high priest that connects you to the Father at all times. You know, that, this year has not been the easiest year to minister to or, or, or through. I mean, in all the things we've seen come our way, we haven't been able to do all the things we'd like to do as a church. But let me say this. It hasn't been impossible Right? And in fact, I'd say in many ways, this year has opened new opportunities to serve because it certainly opened up a bunch of new need. I told you earlier, we get a lot of email to the ministry, and one of the more common ones we get now are people who may not even know Jesus as Lord yet, but they're reaching out because they don't understand the world. They're frightened. Their world's falling apart. They, they, they don't know what the future holds. They've heard scary stories from all different s- sources, and they don't know what to make of the the truth anymore, and they come to us and they say, explain to me what's going on and why. If that's not tailor-made for ministry, I don't know what is. Do you understand the significance of that veil being torn? Do you take advantage of it? Are you considering the place of honor that God has put you in a world in which many others have no access to God at all? Do you carry yourself as a priest of the living God? Think about that this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, that you opened that doorway and you opened the veil. I thank you that you condescend to allow the likes of us to serve you. And I thank you for the reminder that we are called into that service. Father, let us use the days ahead, whatever might come, the difficulties and perhaps, Father, the triumphs to follow, but let us use all of them to your glory. And I pray, Father, you would show us how. Let us intercede When opportunity presents itself, let us speak the truth through our words, which are light, uh, which are bread, and our our actions, which are light. And Father, I pray that we be willing to make all the sacrifices that you've asked of us, so that we can serve in this way. I do pray, Father, we be a church of priests in that sense, who model what we believe. And I thank you, Father, that you give us a reminder today. And in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.